Welcome to Chronicles Podcast, a podcast about real people with real stories having real conversations on health. In this episode, we talk about the COVID-19 vaccine. Hi, everyone. This is Michaela Newman, a global health advocate living in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, and very excited about today's discussions. Hi, this is Maya Olson. I uh, am living in Boston in the United States. I am a global health advocate and someone living with a severe chronic immune disorder. Hey, everyone. This is Joab Wako, and I'm living here in Nairobi, Kenya with a kidney transplant, and I'm obviously interested in how the current situation, current pandemic is affecting people living with chronic illnesses like myself. So yeah, very excited to talk about this. Thanks, guys. So today we have discussed talking about the COVID-19 vaccine distribution, uh, talking not only about vaccine demand, uh, but also vaccine demand generation and where we see um, vaccine hesitancy among certain populations globally. So it's a mixture between meeting the need to fulfill the call for vaccines and the global call for vaccine equity, but also overcoming mis- and disinformation about the vaccine and health mis- and disinformation generally to make sure that we can reach global herd immunity um, and really save lives. So it'd be great to talk to both of you about vaccine distribution um, in your own environments, your reactions to it. I know we all have different um, ideas and opinions and observations coming from where we're based and where we originate. Uh, and, And so I'd love to open the floor for any immediate reactions to this topic. I can start. I mean, I I have so, it's such a mixed bag. I am in the U.S. and I think as everyone knows, we were one of the worst countries in terms of letting the pandemic go unchecked and contributed significantly to um, not only a huge death toll in our country, but, but the virus spreading in, in many other parts of the world. And um, we're also the U.S. who has access to kind of money and wealth and power. So um, many of the vaccines that are available on the market are being uh, have been developed in in the U.S. One of one of the companies was a couple of blocks down the road from me in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, and. We now have a, a president who's taking things seriously, and so he has ramped up um, vaccine distribution in incredible ways. And it's a mixed bag because I have such gratitude for. Um, I just spent the weekend with my parents. I haven't seen them in months and months and months uh, because they are both fully vaccinated, and it's um, safe to see them again. And my friends are getting vaccinated. All of the doctors I work with are vaccinated. Um, and the the sort of inequity of it's going to take the rest of the world, especially lower income countries, so much longer, mm-hmm. um, just speaks to all of the inequities in the way that this world is constructed, and that certainly weighs on me a little bit. I think in terms of my own situation personally, um, I am vaccinated, but. I don't actually prevent 
I don't actually benefit as significantly as other people do from the vaccine. Um, the condition that I have is an immune deficiency disorder mm-hmm. where my memory B cells don't work. And your memory B cells are what receives a vaccine and remembers the response and is able to address and attack COVID if you were to get it. That's how the vaccine works. That's what keeps people safe. My memory B cells don't work. And so a vaccine doesn't work for me. Mm. Um, I was prioritized on the list and encouraged to take it because I am as vulnerable as I am. Um, And that I should have some other parts of my immune system that aren't completely dysfunctional should be able to provide me a little bit of protection, but of a teeny tiny little bit of protection. And that's, I'm again, incredibly grateful because a little bit of protection is better than, than no protection. Mm. But I think something that will start to get very hard and lonely in my little corner of the world is as all of my friends and family get vaccinated and are able to kind of go out into the world and, Nothing will be normal as, as it was before the before the pandemic, um, but there will certainly be more normalcy for them. I'm trying to figure out how much I need to continue to shut myself inside um, and, and how much risk management I can handle before there's herd immunity. And so mm-hmm. the something that I'm following really closely is vaccine hesitancy mm-hmm. and kind of the misinformation and stuff. So I'm happy, I'm excited to get more into that conversation because mm-hmm. people in my community and the immune deficiency community are of the many, we're certainly not the only one, but we're of the many who really do need to wait for everyone else to get it together. And that's that's hard and lonely. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to sort of prepare myself for right now. It's I feel so grateful in a couple of weeks, it's going to get harder, but Job, I'd love to hear how things are going in, in Kenya. Well, thank you, Maya. So there's so many parallels between your story and mine, because I'm immunosuppressed post-transplant, and we've been advised the same thing as you by our doctors to have the vaccine, but they're not so sure how effective the vaccine will be for us. But before I get into that conversation, mm-hmm. I'd just like to give an overview of how Kenya responded to COVID-19. And... We, last year, of course, the pandemic had started and everything, and we hadn't locked down until the first case was reported here in Kenya. So we locked down in mid-March. And I recall uh, a lot of outcry and people wondering why we didn't lock down earlier and just prevented before it arrived in Kenya and spread. But there were so many theories about it because before we even locked down, there were multiple cases before the first case was reported officially by the government. So that's how Kenya dealt with the first guess, COVID case. But moving a year on, we got our first doses of the vaccine last month in March, which is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. And we got the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine through the COVAX facility and uh, UNICEF has really been helping facilitate, I guess, vaccines in lower income countries. Mm-hmm. So we're really grateful that at least we got that, that million doses of COVID vaccine. However, if you look at it, Kenya has 40 million, about 40, okay, I think we're going to 50 million citizens. So a million vaccines is not nearly enough to even get herd immunity. And the reception of the 
the, the vaccine hasn't been the most positive. I know when the vaccine arrived, there was a lot, a lot of misinformation and there are a lot of videos and disinformation and you know it. So it's been a bit difficult in the uptake of vaccines. Early last week, we had just over 300,000 vaccines that had been dispensed or given. And that isn't a very high like uptake. It's already been a month and that's like a third of the vaccines that were you know brought into the country. So we've been trying to just inform people about it and let people know because as you may know, the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine has a lot of controversy around it, and that's the only vaccine that's available. So there's context in that if you get the vaccine, will you have um, a flood here or something? So there have been a lot of conversations back and forth, and I think that has also scared a lot of people from getting the vaccine here. Now, in terms of my personal outlook and how it's going personally, like Maya said, immunosuppressed Communities, we basically have to wait for herd immunity to kick in. Mm-hmm. Now, third world countries, that may take a real long while because if we only have a million vaccines, that's not that much. We have phase two and phase three. So, how our government has done it is the first phase is, of course, frontline workers. And then they've also added to the list clergy and we added people above the age of. 58. Now, I guess they did this because from the records of people who are passing from COVID, a lot of them are older, of course, and we we have been arguing that those older people who are dying usually have uh, an NCD of some sort. They, they have conditions that are in the background and they don't know about it. So by them saying people above 58, it makes sense because of the, the data, but they're leaving out a lot of people like us who are younger and have NCDs and all these things that would lead us to be high risk. So we're left with the only option that is to stay at home and really try and isolate ourselves, as Maya said, mm-hmm. which is very difficult because the rest of the world is trying to move on. Mm-hmm. And Kenya simply went into our, our third wave of COVID and we're currently in a lockdown. So it's a bit difficult and we're wondering about the of course, and just how we can respond and go back to normal or our new normal, as we call it. There are a few reactions that I, I, I wrote down, actually, because we both provided a lot of insight. Being situated in, in Geneva is a very interesting place to observe COVID-19 vaccine response because, well, and, and particularly being um, an American and Canadian living in Geneva, uh, working in global health, because it's this intersection of, you know, observing back home this very America first mentality when it comes to vaccine distribution in the U.S. I mean, we have a new president, but uh, I, I do believe that America first kind of is guiding Biden as much as it, it, it guided Trump in some ways. And then there's the much slower European distribution. So I don't expect to to get a vaccine for quite a while. Um, and in, in Europe overall, there's been some shortages because they are, compared to the US, exporting a lot more of their vaccine supply, I think around 40% of their vaccine supply. And then I'm in the city where a lot of, where the COVAX facility is, is very active uh, through Gavi and 
um, the ACT Accelerator and uh, a number of, of organizations who are trying to make sure that, that vaccines are, are globally distributed and, and you know the WHO's huge campaign on vaccine equity reaching as many countries as possible. But what we still see is this very poor balance when it comes to who is getting enough vaccines. And developed countries are trying to achieve herd immunity of 70 to 80 percent and are satisfied with countries in other parts of the world um, or regions in other parts of the world having, you know, I don't know, 50, 60 percent herd immunity. And I think that this is a a really <laughs> a real signal that we're not thinking about fair distribution of the vaccine. And so it's been an interesting place to to watch these conversations unfold. You know, hearing from each of your your personal perspectives, I am in terms of my my immune system, I'm very healthy, I'm young um, with no pre-existing illnesses. And so I've man I, I don't have expectations of receiving the vaccine soon but what I hear from you as well is that that doesn't mean it isn't important that I'm vaccinated because it's about creating this herd immunity that allows both of you and others to to feel safe leaving their homes and returning to this new normal or this next normal I, that really provides me with perspective because I've been kind of like oh I'm just, I, I don't expect to get it anytime soon and it almost leads to a really naive sense of immunity or uh, I don't know what the other word is for it, but like I've now been living in this pandemic as we all have for over a year and have not tested positive for COVID-19. So you start to think like, oh, it's not going to affect my health. And that's a really, really naive perspective that I think a lot of the world is really wanting to embrace right now because people are tired. But this is just one of many concerns that I think we have going into this next phase because to think that we're, I, my father was telling me that the U.S. wants to have all of its normal flight schedules back up and running, like within the next few yeah. months. And this, this feels like it's a completely parallel universe to the rest of the world. I mean, including Canada, where they are also in their third lockdown. And, you know, my father, who is, who has his own um, concerns with, with his immunity and his immune system, he, he has not been vaccinated yet. I don't know if you guys saw this article, maybe we can put it in the show notes, uh, that came out recently, but it's a call for the G7, you know, the wealthiest countries, to start looking very seriously about what resources are needed for vaccine equity. Because it goes to all the points that you've raised. We need it for herd immunity. We need it so that people living with other uh, chronic illnesses are protected and able to resume their life. And I think there's also this huge concern around this vaccine passport, which is something, if we put it in place, it is going to disadvantage certain populations for a long time. Like, I don't know, I mean, I guess I have a lot to say, but it, this is something that's really, I worry, a human rights issue. And, and, and we need to think super seriously about the narrative that we're going to build here on out and, and how we start to work together to make sure that vaccines are distributed um, in the way that they, they should be through advanced market commitments and tech transfer and all the sorts of things that can make uh, it possible to produce more to, to meet the, the kind of manufacturing capacity that is required and to get vaccines to those who need it uh, and eventually to as many people as possible. I hope that was coherent. <laughs>
No, totally. And I just everything you said was was right on. I think it's obviously nothing new, but just the arrogance and the centering of kind of U.S. Euro, especially the U.S. Um, and I think I think your call on, on President Biden is is, is fair, and um, he's certainly doing a lot and and is showing interest in 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 more of the global conversation. But that hasn't come to pass yet. I think. One thing that could happen that would make all of the difference to, especially to lower income countries, is if the U.S. and EU supported the temporary waiver on on trips, on the the patent Mm -hmm. piece of allowing generic production to happen um, outside of the companies that on the U.S. side were for the most part paid for by the government or by taxes. And so allowing other governments, other parts of the world to increase production, to move things forward, to scale things up, um, and and for us to give more the huge amount. There, there's no argument anymore that you can't mobilize millions and millions of dollars into global health. We've been doing it all the way through COVID in, in every country and every region of the world, um, and it can't just sit in a couple of countries um and so yeah every everything everything you're talking about resonates the the vaccine passport and and some of the kind of thinking about this a year or two or three down the line i don't know how we're going to get to herd immunity if there's free travel for anyone and everyone but only a part of the world is vaccinated that scares like that that just i don't yeah, it, I, I'm not being, I am not being very coherent. Um, I just agree with everything that you were talking about. <laughs> and I agree, I agree with what you said, Maya and, and Ella, because looking at it from a perspective of someone who's living in a lower-income country, you know, I live in Kenya, and there's a lot of global politics going on right now on who gets a vaccine and who's a priority. But here at home, Beyond all that, it's so difficult to convince people to get the vaccine. So we might have a, a case where even if the vaccine is available, there's just too much misinformation about it. So mm-hmm. I don't think the priority for a lot of my fellow citizens here is to save people like us. You know, just the way it looks, it's, it's like it's, it's the survival of the fittest. You know, it's your immunity. It's how your body fights against it. And so a lot of the media and a lot of the things I've watched, seen, being even just thanks to other people, is on healthy diet and eating well, and which is all good and stuff. But we rarely talk about our fears of getting the vaccine or our concerns or like just go into the vaccine to convince people to get it, you know, rather than looking at, okay, will we get it, will we not? Maybe the, the narrative needs to shift to the individual and really tell them why it's important for them to get it. I don't think a lot of people in low-income countries know why it's important. Mm. You know, this community, what is it and why is it important? That's something that we were struggling with here. You're separating things into kind of different levels, and I think that's important. There is these macro-political, big-picture injustices and and, and those power dynamics and, and things like that, but there are also in everywhere that we are individually, but also across countries, there are these 
kind of individual questions around vaccine hesitancy. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine, I she, I was at the dog park and she, she came. She was. We hadn't seen each other for a for a while. It was nice to see her. She turned to me. I was like, my, I, I did a thing. It's like, what are you talking about? And she's like, I have an aunt who was going on and on and on about how she wasn't going to get vaccinated because she's fine and she doesn't have any risk and she doesn't see why she needs to. And I may have given her a lecture on your medical history. I hope that's okay. And I was like, look, that is absolutely okay. You can use whatever part of my life that you know if that helps with those one-on-one conversations with your family or with whoever it is that... um, do, I do think that there's gaps in, in people's understanding of, of even the terms that have become really ubiquitous, herd immunity, and I mean, even things like social distancing and stuff that were, that took time for everyone to get comfortable with the vernacular. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I tell my story, I often have to start it with, how much do you remember about high school biology? Do you know what memory B cells are, because I tell it really differently of why the vaccine doesn't work for me, but it works for anyone else, so please don't take my story and don't think that you shouldn't get vaccinated, um, or that the vaccines are ineffective or, or any of those things, and I, I do think, Job, you're, you're raising a really good point that there is these many, many le- levels, and we can't we can't control the global politics. We can advocate, and we can make our voices heard, and, and try to do what we can there but like none of us have a phone call to to president biden Mm -hmm. um or to the head of whatever vaccine you know um we can talk to the people in our own lives and and do what we can in our in our own communities i think that's a great point that you know if we want to make a difference when it comes to vaccine hesitancy or fighting really any form of mis and disinformation telling our own stories and relating through common interests, like, you know, oh, we're both uh, conservatives, but I got the vaccine, or like whatever it might be, um, can be very powerful, but also incredibly challenging. And I think there are different forms of mis- and disinformation. So and my, your perspective is fascinating because you are in this rarer group that would say, yeah, the vaccine is not going to keep me super safe, but it's going to keep others safe. And I also took the vaccine as part of like, you know, an act in protecting myself and others. And that is such a unique narrative. And I mean, Job, I'd also love to hear from you in terms of, you mentioned that amongst the population there, there's questions about like, what is the value of the vaccine? Why is it important for me and for my health? And I'd love to know what, what other mis and disinformation there is because you know when i'm reading in the u.s that like some people believe that the vaccine is like injecting a chip made by gates in order to track the population or like i know there are so many different type theories behind why getting the vaccine is a bad idea for health and could carry risk but those narratives are also taking place in different local and regional contexts and so that so how we tackle mis and disinformation is also it's something that needs to be kind of tailored. And, and so there's that individual level of communication, but then I think there's also the, the groundwork to identify, well, what are the different narratives that we need to counter? What is the positive alternative messaging that we need to craft to reach different audiences? And, and that, that's still 
there are a lot of unknowns there for me um, globally when it comes to these concerns. Yeah, well, I can I can pick up on some of the misconceptions that I've had locally here, and a really really big one is if you get the vaccine, you'll get COVID nineteen. Mm. So a lot of people think that it's just a, a yeah, it's basically you get it and then you build your immunity from it, and that's how you yeah have that protection from the vaccine. And another one I've had is you it'll affect your reproductive mm-hmm. like your fertility. Like, that's a, that's one that a lot of people have been saying if you get it, you'll be able to get kids. So mm-hmm. uh, amongst my younger friends who are looking to get kids or having got kids, that was a big that's a big a lot of people have been pushing. Hmm. One I've heard uh, in a couple of different ways uh, is kind of concern around how quickly they were developed. And I think that that's been an interesting one because it's hmm. usually someone who's pretty pretty well versed and um, it, it, it's even come from, from people I know in, in kind of health or social services or what I think kind of if you haven't been following public health or or some of kind of centered within the medical field, you can as easily point to the last 10 years of what has been incredible, like Nobel Prize winning advancements mm-hmm. in vaccinology that has allowed um, kind of the mRNA vaccine to be developed as quickly as it had, or the sort of population health dynamics of it wasn't tough to put together trials because it was completely across the population and it was so, you could do trials really quickly, really safely, really effectively because we already failed on, um, on the pandemic. It was a pandemic at that point. And so I think that's one that I've spent a little bit more time talking through I don't, I don't know if, if someone can tell me how to deal with some of the, the right-wing conservative mm. conspiracies and, and things that are kind of circulating within. I just found a family member of ours uh, has doesn't have a huge amount of access to information and very confidently told my mother a couple of weeks ago that vaccine, it, similar to Joe, vaccines will make you sick. Mm-hmm. You're safer without it, and mm-hmm. um, we're not quite sure how to deal with that because we're just sort of sorting out where she's been getting her information because mm-hmm. it's so off. Yeah, it's it's a there's a lot a lot to to really debunk in all of this. Yes, absolutely, and it sounds like once again there are levels of action. So there's the individual action of of getting the vaccine, telling people you've gotten the vaccine, you know creating those positive narratives around the experience and, and encouraging others and offering support. But there's also the national and regional and global leadership that's required. Um, and a lot of skilled workers who need to dedicate themselves to, to overcoming this infodemic, which of course has become a big task of the, of the WHO and other actors to overcome um, vaccine hesitancy and start to drive demand for the vaccine. And I hope, I mean, I don't have the, the answers, but I, I do believe that maybe more than any uh, health issue we've seen to date, there is a lot of global uh, collaboration ongoing, and 
by the end of this, I, I, I just cross my fingers that we've identified tactics and messaging that will help us overcome not only COVID-19 health mis and misinformation, but um, provide us with tools to, to tackle other issues of, of health mis and misinformation online and in person. So I don't know, I still wonder the stories that we're going to tell about what we've, we've learned of this time, the doors that will be opened, the, the ways that health systems might be strengthened. This is, this is the only place I look to for hope um, when it comes to what we've experienced over the last year and a few months. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I had a question for Joe, but it probably goes in a, a different direction tonally than where you, you ended, up, ended up with. I think something that a lot, of, a lot of the work that our organization has been doing is kind of trying to support states and municipalities in the U.S. in a way that we hadn't significantly before COVID and, and so much of in the U.S. the inequity is um, there's inequity between our power within the rest of the, the world but there's a lot of inequity within the U.S. in terms of who has gotten sick, who has died, who who has access to the vaccine and I think the I don't feel particularly well versed in this but um, some of the vaccine hesitancy we've seen in, in communities is around the sort of historical injustices and the ways in which medicine has been used against the black community or black and brown communities. And so there is, uh, my mom, my mom has seen some of that and she works with uh, refugee populations in Minnesota and, and there's a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was curious if, Joe, any of those dynamics were coming into to where things are at in Kenya? Um, that's an interesting dynamic, Maya. For us here in Kenya, we we haven't really had that dynamic where the refugee population, I don't even think a lot of the refugee population has been vaccinated here because we have we do have refugees from Somalia and from Sudan, but uh, I haven't heard of that. I think we don't even have enough vaccines to get to that community, quite honestly. Right. And that's something that a lot of people here in Kenya are really pushing for is the vaccine equity where even though these communities are outside of Nairobi, I think a lot of the focus in Kenya has been within Nairobi, within the city, because that's where there's a lot of people, high population. And even this lockdown has been a radius around Nairobi, because the rest of Kenya isn't really going to a third wave, if that makes sense. That they, they kind of have communities that are out there, and they've had of the COVID, of course, but... Um, the infection rates have not been as high as in Nairobi. So I would say that maybe the narrative hasn't been there yet because we don't even have the option of the vaccine really getting there. Yeah, there's there's so much. I mean, there's there's so much of the interpersonal stuff, but there's also just so much uh, activism and, and advocacy. And this is, I, I think, something that I've, I've gotten frustrated with part of it's personal because I know I'm going to still be inside when all of my friends start start going out and doing stuff um, but more it, it, it's way less about me than than and way less about the personal I think one of the things that we're really good at in the U.S. at doing of like as soon as we're not affected problems it, it's it goes away um, and I don't I don't think anyone where I where I live and in my part of the world has really grappled with the fact that this is this is not going to be over this year, even if the U.S. is looking much better than um, 
than other countries and just yeah the the distribution and just how how much more advocacy and how much more call in the big powers to kind of truth to power with the big powers but also um how much more community by community conversations have to have to happen we've stumbled a few times on <laughs> um are like oh are we being coherent i mean i'm the one who said it the most <laughs> but i think what that that indicates is that it is such a tremendous issue um but also with very very high uh stakes and an effort I, mean, I think we've all been trying to like we've all been kind of clambering to figure out where we go from here and and i think the important thing and and we look to global leaders to do this is how we get there together and where certain policy and regulation is going to favor certain populations and work against our global commitment to universal health coverage um, and health equity. And, and so where we can call this out and, and discuss this with others. And, 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 you know, it's a balance between not shaming, for me, for, for instance, like it's about not shaming my healthy friends in their 20s who are getting the vaccine in the U.S., but... But, but encouraging them to remember that the story is, is far from over around the world. And I don't know. I mean, I think we, we're figuring it out together, but it, it, it's, not a, it's not a clear or coherent process, but it is one that I hope, you know, as many people as possible in their individual and professional capacities are, are committed to, to figuring out. I guess as a, as a parking short, I have a question for you, for Maya and Kayla. So, in light of everything that we said and talked about, you know, we've really defined a lot of the issues we face and at different levels, how that applies or how it cascades and all that. So, in your opinion, what would need to be done or what do you think needs to happen to tip this whole, I don't want to call it a war, like to tip this whole situation in our favor or the new normal that we're looking for what would you say is something that needs to happen or you would imagine needs to happen that would lead us to a better state but i'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that i and for better or for worse i do think that I mean, it's like climate change that you can you can be as individually focused and committed as you are as as you like there there are some heroic ways that people are individually choosing to reduce their their uh, carbon footprint and, and living more sustainably, living more eco-friendly. For this to happen, for, the, for COVID, for the kind of uh, everyone in it together, everyone working together that, that Michaela mentioned and that you've kind of talked about, we are going to have to see the, the kind of global macro shifts in the way that wealthy countries have approached things so far. We're going to have to see a vaccine that is accessible to everyone, and that's going to have to happen through the ability for, uh, it's going to have, like, lowering prices or increasing product, like, any of those those macro things are going to have to happen. Um, otherwise, it's going to be five, ten years before we see countries like Kenya being able to move forward in the way that we're all going to get to in a different part of the world. Um, that I think there's a lot of, of individual ways that you can contribute 
we can all contribute to that kind of call to action. But I think to where you started, there's kind of the different levels. You can kind of be a part of that, that pushing towards the global leaders, global power holders. At the same time, you can kind of think at your community. And, and I know I, I want to think more about what I can do in, in Cambridge or it, with my own family, with mm-hmm. people in my life about providing that information. And, and I don't know, Michaela, what, what comes to mind for you? Well, I think I'm, I'm, I'm definitely stuck on this uh, Guardian article I read about the G7's role this morning. But I do believe that like our, our wealthiest countries need to um, they need to set the standard. They need to show their investment and that other countries will then follow. And again, because there's incentive for them to do it as well, to Maya's earlier point, this, these populations want to get on planes, they want to travel, they want to see the world again. I mean, I was just reading an, uh, an Atlantic article about like how Americans will have maybe their first French summer because they have so much paid time off that they're going to want to take it and they're going to want to go places. But then they need to, th- there needs to be a commitment that those places are also, that people in those places are also inoculated against the, uh, the, the COVID-19. So what this author put forward in, in this Guardian article is that like if the G7 can put forward, you know, maybe 50 or 60 percent, I might have the figures totally wrong, but 50 or 60 percent of the funds required to uh, meet the global vaccine need, then other countries will follow and that there is a way to price this out. I think continued investment in the COVAX facility is also integral. But I do think that when we talk about advanced market commitments for, for instance, the African region, the African Union, uh, which I believe is a recent agreement that was made, this is still something that's like, we plan to deliver these vaccines to you by 2022. But what needs to be clear is, will that happen? What accountability is there? And what resources can go? And, and again, what tech transfer can go into speeding that up and improving? Because I think the big challenge in, in the African region, for instance, is that they have very, very limited uh, production capacity. So they have to wait for these medicines to be shipped to them. Uh, you know, how can we start to build up the resource and how can we make this a part of, you know, this is not going to be the last pandemic. We need to think about building up the resources globally to respond in future. And I'm really, I'm looking to to our wealthiest nations to to set the bar and to uphold it and to be accountable to it and transparent about it. Um, and all these jargon terms that we've talked about in previous episodes, but this needs to be really a thoughtful process. And of course, I echo everything that Maya is saying about our, our community um, approach and how we can inform and educate others. Uh, and of course, vaccinate ourselves. Yeah, look at these positive alternative messages that we can give to others who are reluctant. And I think that each of you have incredibly powerful stories. Um, but again, it's a balancing act because how much of your own story must you reveal in order to ask someone else to protect themselves and to protect others? And that's, that's you know, of course, a decision that rests with each of you. Joe, I hope we I hope we offered some solutions. Now we just need to get these in front of the right people. <laughs> I have one addition, though. I have one oh, addition. You said a thoughtful approach, which is incredibly important. It needs to be oh. urgent, oh, and it yeah. needs to be as urgent 100%. for um, other parts of the world as it's clearly in our own country. And so, oh, if yeah. we can get that to the right people, yes, yeah. absolutely. And I do have a comment before we end. I think. 
what you guys have said is so important, especially at a global level, just getting the vaccines to be available mm-hmm. to everyone. Mm-hmm. And one thing I would add, you know, in Africa, 70, like 70 to 80% of the population is actually youth. I don't know if you guys knew right. that. I don't know. Yeah. Right? So I, the youth here have a big role to play. Like yeah. you said, how do you mean it's what, like if you're in 62? No, higher, 80%. But if the youth get vaccinated, mm. then we'd be able to protect the older people, the vulnerable people, all that. Like, So really for Africa and a lot of developing countries, focusing on the youth and really telling them why it's important is just so critical because once the vaccine is available, it'll be on the perception of the, the vaccine. And a lot of older people are, are not really looking, from what I've heard, a lot of older people are kind of not so for it. So convincing the youth that this will protect your your mom, your grandpa, your mm. grandma, like that is a really critical thing on an individual level. Mm. And that's what I'd like to add to that conversation. The youth shouldn't be forgotten in the solution. 100%. Yeah. That's amazing. Let's end with that. Yeah, that I is- think that is that is our perfect call call to action and hopefully our, our audience out there. <laughs> so um, thank you so much for those those remarks and, and thank you both for the discussion as always. I, I have a lot to think about coming out of this for sure. And uh, thank you so much and um, until next time, yeah. Let's go. See you guys. Bye. Thanks so much for listening in to this most recent episode of Chronicles. So keep an eye out for us on Twitter at ChroniclesPodCST or email us at ChroniclesHealthPodcast at gmail.com. You can also find all our episodes on Chronicles.Podient.co. That's Chronicles.Podient.co online. Thanks so much and looking forward to speaking with you soon.